0: Open your Bibles up to Ezekiel chapter 3. Last week we uh, started to introduce the book of Ezekiel. And I'll just briefly mention for some that weren't here what, how the book is laid out. And then I'd like to, to build upon what we talked about last week. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are two prophets that our contemporaries, they were ministering at the same time. Jeremiah was in Judah ministering, and of course his message was not received at all. It was a message in which he was declaring that they should submit to the Babylonians that were going to conquer them and overcome them, and he basically said, don't fight it, build houses and plant vineyards and raise cattle and learn to adjust to that type of lifestyle. And the false prophets, there were many of them, totally contradicted his message. We may see a little bit of that yet today. But Jeremiah was ministering at the uh, after the second um, group that had been taken away and gone to Babylon. The Babylonians came in and they attacked Judah. The first wave of people that were taken back to Babylon actually included Daniel. I may have said Daniel went in the second, but he went in the first. And we'll be ministering on Daniel here in a few weeks. The first wave that went over to Babylon included Daniel and several other royal children. The second wave included a lot of people, and in this case it also included Ezekiel. So Ezekiel then is in Babylon, and he is prophesying And speaking the same thing as Jeremiah at the same time, except Jeremiah is in Judah and Ezekiel is in Babylon. I always kind of wondered how the message that Ezekiel brought forth got back to Judah. But his primary goal was to minister to those that were in exile in Babylon. And there was communication going back and forth. So it did. But it's the same situation where Ezekiel's message was not received. But those two prophets were basically at the same time. Well, the book of Ezekiel is divided up into three different groups. The first deals with the prophecies uh, or the impending judgment that was going to come on them by the hands of the Babylonians. And that's what I kind of wanted to focus on more than anything else because of the method and exactly what occurred historically. Then you have from chapters 25 to 32, a pronouncement, a judgment upon the nations that are around them. Some of those might apply to things yet that haven't been fulfilled in our day. And the third area is chapter 33 to 48, which deals with a future restoration of the nation of Israel. And there's a lot of that that has not yet been fulfilled. Ezekiel thirty-seven, thirty-eight is really interesting because it's the Valley of the Dry Bones and how that Israel is taken and restored back to their land And we may minister on that a little bit, because I believe much of that was fulfilled in 1948, which is an amazing thing. So we started in with the first three chapters. The first chapter, you have a theophany that occurs. And as you read it, it gets kind of uh, confusing when you read as to what is all this meaning. But basically what we said was it was the chariot of the Lord, it was described as a wheel within a wheel there were four beasts that had or four spiritual creatures that had four faces that were lifting up the throne of God and he was upon his throne that's kind of about the easiest way to remember it but when he saw this vision God gave him a calling and his calling was to be a watchman now if you look over to Ezekiel chapter 3 Chapter 2 without reading it, uh, in fact, it might have been the beginning of chapter 3. It was, it was chapter 3, verse 1. God called him and said, You're going to be ministering to a, a hardened, stubborn, rebellious, stiff necked people. But as your name is, so are you. The name Ezekiel means God will strengthen. And so, just like with Jeremiah, he was promising him that he would strengthen him. So that this message would come forth and it would be true and not compromised like the false prophets were doing. And he proceeded then, he was handed a roll or a scroll in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, when I looked behold a hand was sent unto me and a roll of a book was thereon. It was a scroll and God told him to eat it. Well he didn't literally eat it but in the spirit this was a vision. He ate that. And that was a confirmation that, yes, he would fulfill his calling. And also, it was a confirmation that he was going to get God's word in his heart. So he goes on and tells him in chapter 3 and verse 17 that his ministry, his calling, is to be a watchman. Verse 17 says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth. And give them warning from thee. And we described a watchman. A watchman is one who brings forth uh, a warning of danger that is impending and coming. Like uh, when I was talking to Dave here a little bit ago, when Bev and I were coming home from Tennessee, we stopped at a uh, restaurant to get some coffee down south of Lima and north of Dayton. And when we got back onto the highway, there were tornado warnings out and I noticed there was pickup trucks on the exit ramp parked, and they were up there watching and looking for funnel clouds. That's what they were doing. If they saw something, what would they do? They'd signal back, and the sirens would go blaring off so everybody could hear them and know to take cover. Well, that's what a watchman is. A watchman is one who is watching out for impending danger and then sounds the alarm. So what Ezekiel is going to do for the next 11 years is sound the alarm of the incoming of the judgment upon Jerusalem, which is the third wave or third judgment that comes. and That's what I want to really focus on. But what God says to him when he tells him he is a watchman, he says it's not your responsibility to make people believe. Your responsibility is just to be a watchman. Your responsibility is just to simply tell them what I tell you, and the results are in my hands as to whether or not people will believe it. Repentance is a gift. He was actually, uh, and we'll deal with this a little bit more next week. The Bible says that God made the tongue of his mouth cleave to the roof of his mouth, and he could not speak for seven and a half years. But so during that time, he was one that kind of mingled with people, but he never said anything until God anointed him and said, Here's your message. So if you can imagine, here's an individual that people probably get to know. They're in Babylon. He just doesn't say anything. But then when he does say something, he brings forth these very odd, I don't want to say weird, but he acts out his prophecies, and the people that day, as they looked at it, they probably thought this guy's crazy. Okay, but that was it. Didn't he didn't have to try to be a, a great orator? He didn't have to be appealing to people. He didn't have to be dynamic and handsome. That wasn't his calling. His calling was to warn people of what was coming. In verse 17 of Ezekiel 3, it says, "Son of man, I made thee a watchman." unto the house of Israel, therefore hear at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, thou givest him, and thou givest him not the warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will be required at your hand. God was putting on him a heavy responsibility not to be quiet. The other way, turned around the other way, where he says, Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turned not from his wicked w- wickedness, nor from his wicked ways, if he dies in his iniquity, you have delivered your own soul. God was just emphasizing to him, you have the responsibility to be a watchman. Now to a great degree, all of us do. We have a responsibility as Christians. That responsibility is to be salt and to be light. And so we have a responsibility as the Holy Spirit leads. I'm not saying you have to go on out and stand on a street corner somewhere and make a great big sign that Jesus is coming. I'm not saying that. But the people you go to school with, the people that you work with, the people that you are around, there are going to be opportunities that arise where the Lord is going to want you to defend his truth, defend his word, speak up for his word. We have a responsibility to that. If you remember last week, we read out of Acts 20, where Paul said that he was free from the blood of all men because he had not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. And he was giving that, reminding that responsibility unto all the uh, leaders, church leaders that, had, that were there with him because he was about to go to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and face trial. And so he was reminding them there of their responsibility. But if you look, for example, at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 4, just real quickly, I'm not trying to lay something heavy on, on people to um, you know, put them under some kind of bondage, but the church of our day just doesn't seem to recognize the responsibility that is given to everybody. What they have done, the mainstream church, and it came out of the Catholicism, is they've divided up the church into two different groups. The clergy would be me, because I'm the minister, the pastor here at the church. And the laity is everybody else. And so it's the clergy that has the responsibility to preach the word. It's the clergy that has the responsibility to witness the gospel. It's the clergy that has all these religious duties and responsibilities that they come up with. But when it comes to the laity, the uh, the laity is just the common people, and they're not... They don't have any responsibility given to them. Well, when the charismatic revival came about, renewal, and God poured out his spirit upon us back in the 60s and began to open our heart to understand things like body ministry, not not everybody grasped it, but we certainly did, that the body of Christ is not some big invisible thing up in the sky. The body of Christ is local. And the body of Christ is made up of many members. The Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, gets into great detail on this. It's made up of many members, and every member has a function and a responsibility to the rest of the body. Well, we also have a responsibility to the world outside. Ephesians 4 gives the responsibility to the leadership of the church. He says, I've set uh, evangelists, apostles, teachers, pastors, prophets in the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of their ministry. All of us, every one of us have a ministry. And with that ministry, God wants us that as he impresses upon us to speak up at those times that he opens up the door, he wants us to bring forth what we know from the Word of God. And the only way we can know anything from the Word of God is to study the Word of God. You know, people don't like A church where they're going to be taught a lot of times. It's much, much, it's much more popular today to be entertained. But do your own, do your own research on this. I challenge you. Do your own research. I happened to come across a Jewish site when I was working on some things, and they were talking about how that they should be, all Jews uh, should be zealous for God's word, that they believe that it's the end time. They're looking for a Messiah. And they emphasized how that the children should be uh, diligently taught and instructed in the books of Moses, the five books of Moses, the Torah. And as I read through the the whole article, they were just stressing over and over again the importance of teaching your children what is right from God's word. And trying to bring them back to that. And I thought, wow, it's just too bad. And I'm not saying the whole church is like this. But it's just too bad that we don't have more teaching in churches today than ritual and entertainment. Because people need to be taught and instructed in what is right. Problem is, a lot of people don't want to know what's right. They really don't. If they did, it would affect their lifestyle to a point whereby they would not feel comfortable in following the truth. It's just a lot easier to enjoy a candy stick, and that's why a lot of ministers go that way. But he speaks here just to make a point. 2 Timothy 2, 1 says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The system that God was setting up is that teachers teach people, then they teach people, then they teach people, then they teach people. We're all a product of one another. If I were to take you into my library, I don't know how many books are there, but I'm sure there's hundreds of books that are there and I don't think that's an exaggeration. And from those as I have studied and read those from other ministers, I've been able to pick up and learn and and there's just a harmony in almost all of them. There's been a few I've bought that I've thrown away but for the majority there's been a harmony that's there and it's it's God using a variety of different vessels to minister his word and that's what Timothy's talking about. We have a responsibility to pass it on. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 he says, I charge thee therefore before God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. What, what he's saying is that we should have the word of God in our hearts to whereby we can be instant, in season and out of season. We can be ready at any time to tell people what we believe and understand it well enough to whereby we can proclaim God's word. The time will come when they will not endure sound teaching or doctrine. But after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And turn away their ears from the truth. And shall be turned unto fables. Things that are false. I really believe we're living in that time right now. I mean, uh, it just, well, I don't want to belabor the point but it's we are watchmen Matthew 10 when he commissioned the uh, the 12 to go out he commissioned them to go forth and to preach the word verse 7 of Matthew 10 he said as you go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick cleanse the lepers raise the dead cast out demons freely you've received freely give and then he goes on later on and he reminds them not to be afraid when that message is not received. He says in verse uh, 19, when they deliver you, he talks about how the message is not going to be received. Verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And then he goes on and says, don't pre-plan what you're going to say. Verse 19, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what your, you shall speak, for it will be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Here he's giving that commission to the 12. It's the same commission almost that Ezekiel had and Jeremiah had. And if we were to take the time and look at Luke chapter 10, he gives that same commission to the 70. It isn't just some group called the clergy. It isn't just some special group that's gone to college somewhere and got deeper truths uh, to understand deeper truths. The responsibility to be yielded to the Holy Spirit and speak up for what we have been taught in God's Word and what we live is given to all of us. We are watchmen, and I don't. I think that we should really take the heed what that watchman is, that responsibility that if we're going to quench the spirit you don't want their blood on your hands. Paul said I'm free from the blood of all men. He didn't quench the spirit. When the Holy Spirit moved upon him to say something he said it. And it may have resulted in, well with Paul it resulted in an immense amount of persecution and the same thing with Ezekiel. And it should be true for all of us. So this is what is happening with, it, with Ezekiel, he has been commissioned to go forth and to be a watchman. And if you look at Ezekiel chapter 13, the false prophets were those that they were not they were not watchmen, they were not concerned about them, uh, the people. they were concerned about themselves. In Ezekiel chapter 13, they would have been the ones, for example, that just like to follow what everybody else. Believe. Follow what everybody else says. Follow whatever's popular. Ezekiel 13, it says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Now the main prophecy that was going forth at that time was the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. We'll look at Hananiah if we get there. We'll look at Hananiah yeah, this morning to whereby the prophet Hananiah, false prophet Hananiah, his message was that we're going to rise up, we're going to break the yoke of Babylon, we're going to break and destroy Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to bring all these people that have been carried off, Ezekiel, Daniel, and thousands of others that are in Babylonian captivity, within two years, we're going to bring them back. That was his message. I mean, that's popular. That's what you want to hear, you know? I mean, supposing we, for example, as a nation, had been attacked, let's say, by, well, let's say Russia. Let's say that, that uh, Russia rose up and was able to conquer the United States, and, and those of us here remembered what we had, and it was gone. And the message coming forth was, God's punishing you for your sins and iniquities, and it's going to last for the next century so you may as well just get used to it and, and get settled in and learn to live under Russian rule and so forth. You can imagine that, that message would just be totally appalled. Somebody else comes along and says, that's not God's will. God's will is that we rise up. God's will is that we break Putin's back. God's will is that we get all those people that were taken to Russia and we bring them back. You know that would be the popular message, especially if you're conservative now. You know, you'd want to say, yeah, that's the patriotic thing. Jeremiah wasn't bringing forth the patriotic message. Just the opposite. Well, that message, both in Judah and Babylon, in Ezekiel 13, that was the message, the message that we're going to break the yoke of, uh, of Babylon, that was the false prophet message. Ezekiel 13, two, He said, Son of man prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Woe to the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like foxes in the desert. You've gone you've not gone up into the gaps, neither have you made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Now We've taught on this before, but what Job talks about is that as Christians, we have a hedge about us. And that hedge is a hedge of protection to whereby God will protect us and deliver us and heal us and provide for us. We've got, I, I believe, we all have angels watching over us. And so God is watching over us if we're being faithful and obedient to the knowledge of the light of the word that we have. That hedge is. Build up. But when the hedge can be broken down or broken into, and it's spoken of by the little foxes, sometimes the little things can open up areas of your life to whereby Satan can come in and, and destroy. Intercessors will pray for those people and build up the hedge. That's what he's talking about. Well, the false prophets, they're not concerned about other people, they're concerned about themselves. He says, they've seen vanity, lying divination, saying the Lord saith and the Lord hath not sent them. And they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. They say something, something popular and hope everybody will jump on the bandwagon. And of course, if it's popular, they will. But he says, they've seen a a vain vision and have have you not spoken a lying divination where, as you say, the Lord saith it, but how be it he, he does not. So Ezekiel gets into more detail on it, but uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus, when he's describing a false prophet, he says, for example, here in John 10 and verse 7, he said, "'Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and go in and out and find pasture.'" The thief cometh not but to kill, steal, and to destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters them. He's what? He's not a watchman. He sees a tornado coming, and instead of sounding the alarm, he gets in his truck, takes off. Sorry about that, people, but I'm only concerned about my skin. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He cares not for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of them, and so forth. So he's talking, though, about, oh, he's talking about false prophets. The Bible talks about it a lot. So the point is that Ezekiel here has been given the commission to be a watchman over the people. And the watchman is that he is to bring forth and sound an alarm. Well, when he starts bringing forth this alarm, if you look over to Jeremiah chapter 27, 28, when he brings forth the alarm of the impending judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, it had had been plundered to a decree, but it was going to be all totally devastated and destroyed. And it was just going to be utterly wiped out because Nebuchadnezzar was going to burn it down. And Jeremiah was bringing forth the same message as Ezekiel was. But when they go to bring forth this message, Ezekiel mainly, he does it with symbols and acting out various different things. We'll look at a few of those. For example, he um, takes a tile and he artistically draws on it the city of Jerusalem. Then he lays down on his side and he begins to start setting battering rams against it and bringing military things against it. Remember, all this time he's not saying a word. He doesn't speak for seven and a half years unless God loses his tongue and then he can speak. And his his message is a message... um, confirming being a watchman. And then he he wouldn't talk about sports. He wouldn't talk about, you know, what was going on at home. He wouldn't talk about the neighborhood gossip. It was just strictly the ministry. And he had a very unique ministry. But anyways, he would act these things out. And I'll get into some of those actions in a minute. But he's not the only one that did that. A lot of the prophets would act out things. Here's Jeremiah. I single it out. I can mention this one in Isaiah 21 to 6 without reading it. Isaiah went naked and barefoot for quite some time. You got the right screen up there? You mentioned a couple verses. Which one? Jeremiah what? You're on Jeremiah 27. I don't have the verse up there. All right. Okay. Did he go naked and barefoot in front of everybody? Yeah. Yeah, turn over to, we'll get to Jeremiah. Turn to Isaiah 20 and you can read it. Isaiah 20. He was depicting the judgment that was going to be coming upon the nations and how that they were going to be overcome and they were going to be led away into slavery, into bondage. Well, just read it. Isaiah 20 and verse 1. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon was the king of Assyria, sent him. So we're talking about the Assyrians here. And they fought against Ashdod, took it. And at the same time spoke the Lord by... Isaiah the son of Amos saying go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins put off thy shoe from thy foot and he did so walking naked and barefoot and the Lord said like as My servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives both young and old naked and barefooted, even their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. You find this today. Some of the third world countries, if they go in and you have some tribal leader that uh, goes into Ethiopia or some other African country, and he's going to carry away people captives, you'll see some of people being drawn away into various forms of slavery walking away naked. It would have happened, obviously, uh, when the slaves were brought over to this country. They didn't come in wearing suits. You know what I mean? They came in pretty much naked. And that's what he was depicting as a prophet. The judgment was going to be coming upon those nations. We'll go back to Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah was another one. And in this case, what Jeremiah does is God tells him to put upon him a yoke. Now, you know what a yoke is. It's a wooden the wooden thing where two cattle are put into it, into it and they're locked in and Then you use them for plowing and farming and uh, drawing your carts and so forth. In chapter 27 it says in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah king of Judah came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord to me, make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck. So he's sends these out to different kings. Send them to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, the king of Ammonites, king of Tyrus, king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem, unto Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord, thus shall you say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man, the beast, that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm. And I've given it And have given it unto whom it seemed right. And now have I given all these lands under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. So this is when Babylon is going to go forth and conquer Assyria. Remember we talked about the international scene where you had the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. The Assyrians were the ones, the strongest, that ruled. But the Babylonians rose up, conquered Assyria... Uh, attempted to conquer conquer Egypt, did not, but they at least conquered into into Judah and that whole region. We had maps and so forth and talked about it. This is Jeremiah talking about that. Remember, he served under five different kings. Well, it came to pass that the nation and the kingdom, which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and famine and with pestilence, until I have consumed them by my hand. Now that's what I'm trying to lead up to. Because the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. was just extremely terrible. I mean, they were, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but they were surrounded for 18 months by a huge Babylonian host. Nothing could go out, nothing could go in, and it reached a point to whereby cannibalism and so forth was beginning to come in. And finally, they made a breach in the wall. And Ezekiel acts this out. He actually digs through a wall that's in front of him, depicting it out as to what is going to happen. And then when King Zedekiah and his family flee, Nebuchadnezzar brings him before him and rebukes him and plucks out his eyes and takes him to Babylon and he ends up dying in Babylon he was just a young man of the early 20's when he became a. Uh, he was an appointed king in, Bab- in uh, Jerusalem and so he would have been a man that probably spent, I don't know when he died but he would have probably been in his late 20's when his eyes were plucked out and he then served and went to Babylon for uh, many years, but he was blind. But anyways, go back to this yoke. Here's Jeremiah walking around with this yoke on. And people said, what's the yoke for? And he'd bring forth that message. And then he would say to them, um, verse 11, The nations that bring their neck under the yoke of king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith the Lord. And they shall tell it and dwell therein. And I spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die thou and thy people by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? He's saying, why, why do you want to resist that? It's been appointed, 70 years of captivity. Nothing's going to change it. Absolutely nothing. But Zedekiah listened to the religious leaders, not Jeremiah, and rebelled then against Nebuchadnezzar. And when he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar sent in the, sent in the troops. And then he was punished when Nebuchadnezzar rebuked him. Um, I, I was going to read to you from what uh, Josephus talks about it. He rebuked him and, and told him he was, you know, not a man of his word well in jeremiah 28 after he is walking around with this yoke on and that's his message we read verse chapter 28 verse 1 it came to pass the same year in the beginning of the reign of zedekiah king of judah in the fourth year in the fifth month at hananiah the son of azer the prophet which was of gibeon spoken to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and the people and said thus saith the Lord of hosts the God of Israel saying I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon just the opposite within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has taken away and carried them to Babylon I'll bring them again to this place Jehoiakim the son of Jehoiakim King of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon, and all those people are going to be coming back. And then said the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests, and the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. Sounds good. Man, that's a good message. I'll take that. We'll receive it. Just like a lot of people today, you know, You don't have to worry about how you're living when Jesus comes. We're all just going to get raptured and taken up. Amen. If it happens, praise the Lord. But if some are left behind, (laughs) they're going to be rudely awakened. You say, well, then what should we do? Make your calling and election sure. Live your Christianity. Seek to walk in the Spirit and hear God's Word and live it. And be an overcomer? Well, anyways, he goes on to say, uh, he tells him that verse verse 8, Jeremiah says, The prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and pestilence. The prophet which prophesies a peace, when the word of that prophet shall come to pass then shall the prophet be known that the Lord truly sent him. If it's a message of peace and prosperity and super blessing, if it comes to pass, well, we know he was a prophet of the Lord. But if it doesn't, doesn't, he's a false prophet. Hananiah took the yoke from off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations in the space of two years. And Jeremiah the prophet went his way, took that yoke off of him, and broke it in half. Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet, after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off his neck. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Go tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yoke of wood, but thou shalt not make them, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel I put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him, and I have given him the beasts of the field also. Then he went on to tell him that because of him being a false prophet, that he would die within a year. And the last verses, so Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. In other words, the blood of Hananiah was not on the hands of Jeremiah. He was a watchman. So these individuals would walk, they would oftentimes act out what they were saying. Another, without reading it, is Ahijah. When uh, Rehoboam came before him, He took his garment, Jeroboam rather, when the tribes were being split, he took his garment, cut it up into 12 pieces and gave it to him. And it was to indicate that God was going to destroy the the kingdom of Solomon and divide it up into 12 different tribes, which he did. So with that in mind, turn over to chapter 4 of Ezekiel. And I'd like to get into just a little bit of this. I won't be able to say everything that I wanted to say today, but I can at least show you one thing And then I'm going to let you go. In Ezekiel chapter 4. Here's where Ezekiel begins to start acting out these prophecies. And he did this a lot. He acted them out in many different ways. But this one is rather interesting. Chapter 4 says, Thou son of man, take a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So he took a clay tile and he drew the city Jerusalem on it. Now remember, he's not saying a word. He's just doing it. People would go by and look at him wondering, what the heck is he doing? Lay siege against it, build a fort against it, cast a mount against it, um, and set battering rams round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan. So he had an iron plate. He was also a priest, and this was used in the in the priestly ceremony many believe that was it take an iron pan set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it and it shall be besieged and thou shalt lay siege against it and this was a sign of the house of Israel so he's got this tile and it's scratched on it is the city and he takes this iron plate and he puts the plate between the tile and himself now what does that depict well some believe that it depicts the the separation of Israel from God, that they were not in fellowship with him. And others suggested that it was a, a sign of protection to Jeremiah. I've got a couple references. Jeremiah 1, 18, 19, Isaiah 59, 2. Uh, both of those would kind of speak in that area. Jeremiah was like made an iron pillar so that he could be protected from this rebellious nation. I mean, nobody likes these guys. you got to get that in your mind. So he begins then with this iron pan in front of him, he's he's battering rams against this clay tablet. And he says, Lie thou on thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou wilt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I've laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So for 390 days, he has to lay on his side and do this battering, this this, um, play against that tile. And when thou hast accomplished that, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arms shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. God was going to enable him to do this. Now he doesn't say he did it 24 hours a day. I guess I'd find that kind of hard to believe. I mean, it had to be really supernatural. So... I don't know how long a period he actually carried this out, but he did this for a total of 430 days, which depicted something in regard to 430 years. Now, what did that depict? Well, if you understand the Jewish, if you understand the calendar uh, with the Old Testament, it goes in reverse. Like we've come from 2015, now we're in 2016, it's increased, but... The Old Testament went backwards. And so if you take the time from the King Jehoiachin, which is 597, and you go backwards 430 years, you come to 167 BC. And 167 BC brings you to that time period of the Maccabeans. And the Maccabeans at that point revolted against Antiochus of Epiphanes and delivered Jerusalem, and they brought restoration unto Jerusalem, and they were for a short period of time, For uh, from 167 to 160 B.C., they actually had their, their city and land back. It's so just a, a short period. So this is what is celebrated by the Jews when it comes to Hanukkah. Hanukkah is at the same time, you know, we're just out of it now. It's into December, and I, I don't think it goes into January. But do you understand what Hanukkah is and what they're celebrating? Let me share that with you, and I won't go any further with Ezekiel. I'll come back and deal with some other things that are, we'll deal with the destruction. But the, the date of the Maccabean revolt, celebrated by Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? Well, Antiochus issued decrees forbidding Jewish religious practice in Palestine. Who's Antiochus? Well, you're now in between the period of Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire. Alexander the Great, when he died, his empire was divided up into four different generals. One of those was the Antiochus group, and uh, it it was the Seleucid or the, the Seleucid Empire, and they took over, I didn't bring maps with me, but they took over that area of uh, Turkey and Palestine and that type of thing. Let me give you a little bit, if you look at this next. This is a description from a world dictionary, a world history book on Antiochus. i give you a little bit about that because this isn't in the Bible. Now, it would be... The Maccabean period would be in the Apocrypha, which the Roman Catholics use for their Bible. We, as Protestants, don't accept the Apocrypha and the various books of it, but we do acknowledge that it is good history. The Maccabean, first and second Maccabees, is good history because it gives you an understanding of of what's between Malachi and Matthew. It's history in that regard. And that's where you're going to find some of these truths. And We won't be getting into it. But anyways, let me read to you about Antichus. He was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire. This would be the Greek Empire, now divided up. He gave himself the surname Epiphanes, which means the visible god. And he believed that he and Jupiter were identical. He acted as though he was really Jupiter, and the people called him Epimenes, meaning the madman. <laughs> and he was. He violently he was violently bitter against the Jews, and was determined to exterminate them and their religion. He devastated Jerusalem in one hundred sixty eight BC, defiled the temple, offered a pig upon its altar, erected an altar to Jupiter, prohibited temple to worship, forbid circumcision on the pain of death, sold thousands of Jewish families into into slavery destroyed all copies of scripture that could be found and slaughtered everyone discovered in possession of such copies and resorted to his every conceivable torture to force Jews to renounce their religion and this led to the Maccabean revolt which is one of the most heroic feats in history now I'll go back I'll go back a page and what occurs here if we read it during this time um, no nope. I got the wrong sheet. Matthias, the priest, a Jewish priest by the name of Matthias, the Hasmonean, he sparked a revolt against uh, uh, the Seleucid Empire, against Antichus. by refusing to worship the Greek gods that they had been told to do. Matthias killed a Hellenistic Jew now Hellenistic Jews and that's what they started out being against was one that still called themselves a Jew but they adopted all the Hellenistic ways they were compromisers and so Matthias killed a Hellenistic Jew who stepped forward to offer up a sacrifice to an idol in um, Matthias' place Matthias and his five sons then fled into the wilderness of Judah and after his death about one year later in 166 B.C., Judah Maccabees led an army of Jewish dissidents to victory over the Seleucid dynasty guerrilla warfare, which at first was directed against the Hellenized Jews, of whom they were many, and the Maccabees destroyed pagan altars in the villages, circumcised boys, and basically did a lot of outlawing against the, against the, Jew, against the Greeks. The term Maccabees is taken from the Hebrew word, which means hammer. The revolt involved many battles in which the Maccabean forces gained notoriety notoriety among the Seleucid army for their use of guerrilla tactics. And after the victory, the Maccabees entered Jerusalem in triumph, richly cleansed the temple, reestablished traditional Jewish worship, installed Jonathan Maccabee as the high priest, and a large Solution army was sent to squash the revolt, but returned to Syria on the death of Antiochus Fourth. And that's really interesting to read how he died and everything else. Its commander, Lysias, preoccupied with internal Solution affairs, then agreed to a political compromise that restored religious freedom in 160 BC. But what they really celebrate in Hanukkah is really what's next here. They celebrate all that. But when the Maccabees returned to Jerusalem to liberate it, they entered the temple and they cleared it of all of its idols that were placed by the Syrian vandals. Jude and his followers built a new altar, which he dedicated on the 25th month of Kislev. This is the Jewish calendar now. And since the golden menorah, you know, the lamp holder, with all the different lamp things, had been stolen by the Syrians, the Maccabees now made one of a cheaper metal. And they wanted to light it, and they found only a small cruise of pure oil bearing the seal of the high priest, Yohanan, and it was sufficient to light only for one day. So they poured it in, and they lit it, and they believed by a miracle of God it continued to burn for eight straight days until new oil was made available. And that to them was a sign that God was still watching over them and keeping them and was looking to restore them. And so that's what Hanukkah is all about, is that, is that celebration of lights, to whereby that menorah kept burning. Well, I want to keep going. I'm going to stop. But I want to end with this and move on, because the next thing that Ezekiel does is he shaves all his hair off and he takes and divides it up into three different groups. And he sets one of them on fire, and he chops up one with a a knife, and another one he he scatters to the winds. And he keeps a small remnant and puts it in his shirt, and that's a remnant. And to me, it symbolizes that God has a remnant close to his heart that he's going to spare. But the other three, when all that is carried out, It depicts the great destruction of Jerusalem. And I'd like to talk about that next time and look at what is there in Ezekiel and look at what Josephus, a Jewish historian, speaks about that time. And then as we can move our way through that, then I want to lead that into the promise of restoration that's coming when we move out of Ezekiel. So I'm going to stop. Amen? All right, bow your heads. Father, I just thank you for giving us this Book in scripture and the wisdom to understand these truths of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And there's something here far more than just interesting history. What's here is a, a strong message to all of us that we are like watchmen and that you've given us a responsibility to be salt and light, to contend for the truth. Stand fast to what is right, even when many others around us may not. That you've given us the responsibility to be custodians of your faith. And also to see that grace is not something that can be misused. They had grace in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system was a system of grace. We have one sacrifice That's Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But we just can't keep going through the habit of appealing to that sacrifice and then go on and live like the world and live in sin because it'll draw your corrective, chastening hand, just like it did with Judah. You clearly show over and over again in all the prophets one strong message, that you're a jealous God, And that you will not tolerate any kind of idolatry in your worship. And that you expect us to treat others as we would want to be treated in similar situations. The whole law is summarized in in loving you and loving others as ourselves. Father, this message, it just keeps going over and over and over again. Just like the Gospels, it's a, a constant repetition four different times because you're trying to emphasize to us, That your message is very clear. That you want us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. So we just thank you for the reminder and, and the truth in this book. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.